Hey guys, it's 20th episode of Midnight Wisdom. This is happening. Holy shit. Wow. Uh, it's funny how we've gotten so far. And uh, like, I'm so grateful to say I have a, I have a guest tonight too. Alia Alhamad. One of my favorite people on this planet. Like, she's so brilliant and so engaged in so many different things. You know, she's so passionate about life and trying to help people in general and finding a progressive way to tackle new things she's a holistic health coach and a yoga instructor and she's worked with sustainable city in dubai and she's collaborated with a progressive school called green school and we talk about that a lot actually (laughs) earth warriors uh (laughs) yeah she's so engaged in so many different things and i remember meeting alia and 2017 it was new year's 2017 that was about yeah, exactly two years ago and i wasn't in the best stage of my life back then you know i was going through a lot and it was pretty weird and you know one of those conversations that you have at those exact right times with the exact right person and alia was that person for me at that exact time and since then you know like i've been through my journey, I've, I've went back and forth to her to ask her, you know, like what she thought about certain things. And she always, you know, said somehow the right thing that got me to, let's say, understand where I am in my path a lot better. And it's funny because when I mentioned that to her, she, she forgot that she did any of that. But to me, it meant so much. And, and honestly, like I'm in a sort of stage of, of shock that were 20 episodes into and that was I think that's amazing and yeah otherwise I'm I'm in Finland right now I'm visiting a friend of mine a Finnish friend of mine I met when I was doing my exchange in Madrid and I arrived two days ago and the first thing we did was head into the steam room and have a steam room session and then go onto the balcony which was full of snow and he looks at me and he's like we're swimming in the snow right now and he just jumps in completely naked <laughs> and it was crazy you know it was really cold definitely and my feet couldn't handle you know the rest of my body was okay with the cold but my feet just like constantly in contact with the snow fucking killed me so i want to see like within the next nine days that i'm here if i'm able to withstand some more snow and i'll, I'll talk about that later i'll record an episode with him during the week for sure and uh, probably have that uploaded next week and I'll, I miss my midnight thoughts, you know, I miss just sitting there and talking about life, but hey, we have guests now, so we should be excited, I'm super grateful for for Alia and everything that she shares with us, it was a lovely conversation, and I'm sure everyone's going to get a lot out of it, she has so much to share, and with that, I'll, I'll let you to it, <laughs> enjoy Alia's majestic and beautiful feminine voice, take care. Oh. Hey, is this working? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, imagine technology. No, I should get people to download Anchor all the time instead of, you know, suffering over WhatsApp calls. No, I mean, uh, yeah, you'd have to record every conversation that you have with everyone you talk to. So that might not be the most convenient choice. Or but... it could be the best thing ever because I'll have all my conversations like yeah, yeah. all the way. Yeah, um, there is an application called Hi You, which uh, you can call through to anyone in Dubai without any problem, uh, inside and outside of Dubai. It's pretty amazing. If, uh, 
you might as well go for that. I'll look into that. Where where are you right now? What what's going on in your life? I'm in Dubai. Funnily mm. enough, these days I feel like I'm living in Kuwait and visiting Dubai. Yeah. As opposed to the opposite of living in Dubai and visiting Kuwait. But I mean, you have a lot of family in Kuwait, right? Yeah, yeah, and I'm Kuwaiti, so you know that's. Oh, fine. you're Kuwaiti. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know, had no idea you're Kuwaiti. Like, I don't think I've ever actually been friends with a Kuwaiti. Not that I'm. Well, there's the first time for anything. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I guess so. <laughs> Tell me, how is how is life in the average day of a Kuwaiti? Look, it's hard for me to be the one to tell you because I can give you my perspective on what it's like to be a Kuwaiti or whatever, but I'm not the average Joe because I didn't grow up in Kuwait. My mother's Armenian, and I'm not even going to go into a thousand details of why I don't speak Arabic properly, but it's also, you know, because I was born in the States. So I think the average Kuwaiti is like raised in Kuwait. They speak Khaliji. Um, they... Yani, they're, they, they're kind of part of extended, an extended family. I have my family there, but I, you know, my mom's family's not there. Not to say that I, like, I don't have a good group of friends and like um, amazing cousins that I'm connected to, but like, I don't have that average life that an average Kuwaiti would have, right? And um, my life there, the thing is, I'm not really living there. I'm traveling so much. It's between Kuwait and Dubai these days. I'm trying to make a move to london which has been this like idea of mine which i don't know if i can you know will come to fruition so i'm not really like settled there but my life there is great um it's much slower and i'm really welcoming that into my life right now because dubai has a very specific pace and it is quite fast although it's a relatively small city when you compare it to like a new york or a london or whatever but it has a very similar pace but it's also not there yet where um like it's it's not like this kind of uh, vibrating metropolis the way that London or Paris or you know New York is. So there's a very specific kind of scheduling to Dubai of the nine to five life. So if you're not in that kind of grind, you and and it's a very fast paced place, then you kind of feel like you don't really fit in. And um, that's kind of where I'm at right now. And also just yeah, being in a place that's really slow and. Uh, having family around and having just, I don't know, putting priority on my relationships and my friendships and my family and my mom and my dad and my cousins. And that's just been really wonderful for me in the past few months because I haven't had that in a really long time. And Mm -hmm. my nervous system has just kind of like calmed down. And yeah, I'm really revved up and like overstimulated in Dubai. I just can't explain it. And I realized for my health as well, just Kuwait has been amazing. So I'm doing a lot of work there. I'm much more calm, you know. Yeah, so you feel for the longest time you've been, uh, you've been being, like, Dubai's sort of burning you out, let's say. What? Like, do you, would you feel like Dubai is sort of burning you out this entire time? Because, like, I grew up in Dubai, too, you know, I, I know what vibe you're talking about, but I, I never experienced the working life like you probably did, so I don't know what the, the pace expects of me, let's say. Yeah, yeah, look, but also I'm not going to, you know, sit here and um, pretend to, you know, to, to you that I had this like crazy nine to five or nine to seven grind here, which is, I think, maybe the typical situation for a lot of people, especially like bankers or consultants or just like cor- the corporate world will really, you know, get you overworked here. I think people are working like nine to seven or nine to nine. So luckily, no, mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't have that lifestyle as well. But there is a p- pace of Dubai and because I'm. I don't know, I think my life or my interests are so multifaceted. I do 
do a lot. I take on a lot of stuff and I deal with a lot of people and I have a lot of like thoughts in my head and like I'm just constantly overstimulated. So my plate is very full, even though I'm not doing the nine to nine grind like a lot of other people are here. So I just think no matter what you're into in Dubai, the pace is very fast and it can get your nervous system really kind of revved up, you know. So on the one hand, yes, the lifestyle in Dubai can be quite um, strenuous in that sense. But on the other side, it's like, no, I was lucky enough. I didn't have that crazy consultant schedule. Like I have a friend who travels to Saudi, you know, every or wherever, every week. So he's on an airplane every four days, you know, and he barely stays in Dubai. So luckily I don't have that lifestyle, but no. Dubai can yeah. still be quite hectic, you know? I can imagine. <laughs> Do you think you'd prefer the type of lifestyle that's just, uh, you know, more calm and more, I don't know. For me, I feel like I, I just need every now and then just this quiet space where there's nothing going on and it's just like, I don't know. Yeah, for sure. I'm very much attracted to the simple life. And that's why when I take my trips, um, I travel I usually like I stay away from cities um which is why it's so strange that I'm actually attracted to London these days but that's a story for another day yeah, that's actually pretty strange why, why are you so into London um I miss Europe London is also home away from home because we have a, a house in the countryside there and I've been going there my whole life my family's oh. there six months of the year so my parents are in Kuwait six months and in London six months pretty much okay. um I mean, London has been a thought of, like, has been um, proposed to me many times over the years by my parents, my family, my friends to do my undergrad there, to do my master's there, to get a work experience there. And I always rejected it because it's such a big city. And I lived for two years in New York. And I feel like London is a bigger city than New York. And after my two years in New York, I was frustrated. And I left. Voluntarily, I left. I can promise. Yeah. And I've made a vow to myself that I'll never live in a big city again. Or concrete jungle again. Um, I mean, but I don't know. London has a lot to offer, and it just kind of, you know, sometimes it's a matter of the right time. Oh. And it just feels like maybe for now, it's just it's the, I'm at I was at the right place at the right time, whereas before I might have been at the wrong place at the, at the wrong time. I can't explain it. You're saying that you have like so many ideas and so many things you want to engage with and activities and people and things and and at the same time you're not you're not doing the nine to five at that pace but but you're always still busy and you keep yourself busy and I feel like you're the type of person who you know you want to get things done and you or you want to do stuff you want to learn something new you want to have a, maybe a sense of progression in your life uh, often yeah and, exactly. It's just like I, I've, I've never, you know, when we first met about, um, it was two years ago, right? That was uh, the turning of the year 2017, New Year's Eve. <clears throat> and w- when we talked to you, you were telling me about how, uh, now I was, I was super impressed with you. I had like this total, <laughs> total crush on you. I was like, damn, this, this woman's just amazing. And um, yeah, you told me you were doing yoga you're a yoga instructor and that you were doing something with regards to education and and abu dhabi right no I, I, I have nothing to do with abu dhabi why did i think that you did something in abu dhabi um because i worked for a project called the sustainable city which i think gets compared to mustard a lot and mustard is really famous and it's in abu dhabi 
Sure. Um, so people sometimes get confused and think I work for Mustad, which is the kind of famous sustainable project in the Middle East or the world, um, at least back then. But so I think that's why you got confused. But yeah, that is what I was doing. I mean, I, I haven't worked for Sustainable City since last summer. And that was technically my desk job. But <laughs> I'm not there anymore. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, but like, what was it that you had to focus on when it came to education, at least? <clears throat> with sustainable city yeah okay you ready for this because it's probably going to be a long one <laughs> <laughs> i think i have the time you know for it okay well obviously working for a project called the sustainable city we're trying to get sustainability and environmental kind of issues into the educational kind of activities or system or whatever it is we were doing. So whether it was at the community level, like just educating the residents about sustainability and act, trying to get them to actively change their behavior, meaning to recycle more, to reduce energy, to reduce water. Consumption. Damn, how, how do you get people to do any of that? Well, first it starts with awareness, right? You got to get them aware of these things and educated, if you will, quote unquote education. But also you need to, you know, provide an infrastructure. It's very difficult. Like, for example, I am, a, we, we, we recycle. Like, you're in Europe. I'm sure it comes second, hand, second nature to you. Yeah. In Switzerland. But when I come to Kuwait and there isn't an infrastructure for recycling and I don't know where to take my glass or my plastic, similar to Dubai, how that things are a bit better and it's improving, um, you are less inclined to do that, right? And then you go to, like, a grocery store and they give you, five different plastic bags for five different items you know my toothbrushes in one plastic bag and my bananas in another whereas i'm sure in germany that is not the case at all you probably you know get charged if you use plastic right uh, like in germany you have to either buy your own bags or you come to the shop with your own you know plastic bags or your backpack or your, re your reusable what? bag yeah exactly so you're always using the same bag which is which is nice you know but like i read that it doesn't really change much <laughs> with anything but whatever but it's i think it's a it's a mentality that's important you know it's a, yeah, well, it's a yeah. because here we have very much of a wasteful mentality where and even the people who aren't like that usually like me or like other people that you know maybe came from europe or wherever where they're kind of used to just being mindful about how much they're consuming and waste and all that stuff um when you're here and there's there isn't an infrastructure for it, the mentality is not like, I don't know, it's not um, conducive to that kind of behavior. You kind of forget. I become a lot more wasteful here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah. So it's basically creating that culture of sustainability. And that was a lot. To, that had a lot to do with the work I was doing at Sustainable City. But at the same time, I was very much involved with setting up the vision and the mission for the school that was coming up. So that's why I'm, I was saying there was like, there were different educational activities going on at the project. Um, and the school was a K to 12 school is, I should say. Okay. So it's one school that you have to focus on applying these, these things. Yeah. Also like, you know, uh, introducing um, courses on environment, on the environment and on um, environmental issues and solutions and all that stuff, but also okay. having a culture of sustainability within the school. But as part of this work, um, I came across the Green School in Bali, all right? My, one of my best friends' daughter um, went to that school, and my best friend was living in Bali at the time, and she said, listen, you need to come out here and check out the school, and of course, I did, straight away. And my boss at Sustainable City was really happy about it, and he wanted me to, like, you know, learn everything I could, and then 
see, see if there's any, I don't know, room for cooperation, um, sorry, collaboration or any best practices we can learn from them and all that stuff. And that was basically what that meeting at at the Green School in Bali is um, what is what kind of snowballed into a two years worth of work of trying to not just bring in green ideas into a school, but progressive approaches to education. Okay. Um, which is where, you know, I think you and I, around the time you and I met. Okay. So then that's, that's was when I was telling you, like, education needs to be changed. And you were like, yeah, but I'm already doing that. And I was like, dope. <laughs> oh, my God. Was I that modest? Very good job of being modest. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, because the Green School is really an example of... Um, of that kind of model that I think you and I were discussing of being progressive in terms of education and um, representing the change in education because we, the education system that like conventional and typical education system, or I would say the uh, schools are kind of, they've been launched out of the uh, industrial revolution. So they're very much based on like clerical and um, literacy kind of mm. um modes of of learning or teaching or whatever so so it's more focused on letters and words and just memorizing them and and writing them memorizing them and being really good at passing exams and standardized exams which means you can talk about being as like uh, learning learner centered as you want but if you have standardized examinations that is not respecting the the individual capabilities or talents or um, obstacles that a child has. Yeah. You give them, you know, you're standardizing them and kids and humans are, can't be standardized. So that's where some of the issues are with the con- kind of conventional systems of schools. And the green school doesn't have that at all. And they're like, they have this kind of wellnessness approach and they don't even have a curriculum. They have things called, <laughs> they have a thematic system. So they don't even believe in like subjects, they have themes. And what they're doing is very much in line with what Finland is doing. And Finland is basically rated number one in the world for education, right? Yeah, I think we should all just, you know, take a, take a page or two from Finland and just swallow our own egos and just adopt a Finnish educational system worldwide. Well, you know, I don't see why we haven't done that yet. It's coming slowly. Yeah, I hope. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, but the Green School is, was really awesome because they have a very, very holistic approach to, to education, to dealing with a student, a child, a teenager. Um, it's very kind of experiential based, a very hands-on. You're experiencing your learning. You're not just sitting in front of a textbook. Um, mm. and so it's more you're, engaging. You're more, you're more there. You're actually learning a exactly. skill and incorporating it in your life and using it. Exactly. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's funny. So you just had this like green school and you kept on adopting different activities in it and seeing how different methods of progressive learning can be added in and seeing how students react and then adjusting. And so you're basically all experimenting with this like one school or? No, so we didn't experiment. We were setting it up and my relation, our relationship with the green school was to kind of either have them as consultants for us and then they um, invited me to go over and get certified by them uh, as I did their green educator course. I would really learn the ins and the outs of their approach to education. And then I would bring that back to sustainable city and talk to my boss about the things I've learned and what we can incorporate in our school. So it was two years pre-operational work that I was doing before the school got into operation. Now, 
fortunately, unfortunately, however you want to take it, um, we, uh, well, my boss decided that it didn't make sense to go ahead with the green school model. And we kind of cut ties with the green school in Bali. And that's around the time that um, my relationship with the school that was coming up started to kind of dwindle. And then eventually we made the decision that it does, my relationship with Sustainable City doesn't make sense anymore, which is why I left. Um, okay. And I'm sure there were like some financial kind of incentives or financial risks involved or whatever, you know, I, I'm not involved with any of those things. But I'm sure that, that you know, finances played a part in that too. And yeah, I mean, if it's, if it's a corporation or a business that's trying to incorporate an entire different model in its entire structure, there's always going to be a phase where everything goes slower and they lose more than they gain. But then in the long term, they're more sustainable, right? I mean, that's the yeah, point. I don't know. But there was also like market research where I think there was a feeling of maybe Dubai's not ready for that really, for that very much... Um, for that kind of extreme approach to uh, education, or they kind of thought it was an extreme approach. Well, I understand that completely because it's way out of the box for Dubai. But at the same time, the KHDA was talking to me and saying, you know, we're really ready for something like that. But then we weren't sure. Um, Who was talking to? The KHDA, which is the, the, it's the authority in Dubai that's responsible for licensing private, um, private schools. Whereas the Ministry of Education is like Harkuma schools, uh, public schools. Um, so I was dealing with the KHDA a lot with my work with Sustainable City because eventually you need to get licensed by them to operate, right? And there's yeah. policies and rules and regulations um, that you need to uh, abide by in order to get licensed. Um, and a lot of those things didn't allow for a green school to operate here. But at the same time, we were having private meetings with them. And they were saying, no, we're actually really interested in something like this. So there was a lot of, you know, pulling and tugging and, you know, tension and uneasiness and uncertainty that I think my boss and his partners and the Sustainable City kind of project decided that it wasn't worth moving forward to the green school, which for me was, you know, sad. <laughs> so well, obviously, like you put a lot of time into it and it's something you believe in, you know, you're changing lives. And honestly, even if it's something completely radical, I'm I'm the type of person who thinks sure it's radical, but you know if it's if it's never adopted because it's radical, then it's never going to be adopted, and it has to start at some point before it's actually before Dubai or anywhere else is ready for this, you know. And even if we can't ad ad adapt to it or adopt it completely, you can just take elements from it and find this midway type of balance with what is and what can be, and then continue to just adjust from there. But I can see like how, you know, so like they, they thought that the system might not completely work in, in that state and therefore decided not to continue. You know, like I can I can understand that decision and there's always a risk. And for me, I, I don't look at the, I don't look at it personally. I look at, you know, the the long term global effect of what this decision can can lead to, because if it was one school or one system, then then it can propagate into into more. Right. But yeah. because that decision wasn't taken then it wasn't taken and we are we aren't moving a little bit more in that direction because because of that and even if that business failed or sustainable city didn't you know didn't adapt the business model i don't wouldn't say business model the sustainable model from schools properly then uh, it's yeah. not the sustainability right it's uh, i, I want to make that clear because the green yeah. school although it's green 
in the sense that you know they have these wonderful bamboo structures and they have solar panels here and there. Oh, this is cool, man. I wanna, I wanna <laughs> it's amazing. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. But so of course it's green, and they talk about you know the environment with the kids, and the kids are like these earth warriors. They're <laughs> but like what's special about the green school is not just their approach to sustainability and the environment; it's their approach to education. They don't even have a curriculum, and they have this thing of you know. People think that school that that um, kids are failing schools, but their thing is like, no, schools are failing the kids. Definitely. Yeah, and so they're trying to find a way to be, you know, a little bit more um, kind of relevant for for kids. Because if you're more relevant, you know, if the material's more relevant, then kids are more engaged to have the kids much more involved in their learning. Because if they're more involved and they're more engaged, more interested, they learn more. When you're doing something that's really boring, or you're asking a I don't know, an eight-year-old or a 14-year-old to sit and like a 14-year-old boy to sit and like read Shakespeare, like no judgment. I'm sure there are a lot of kids that like to do that, but there are also a lot of kids that don't like to do that. And it turns out like girls are actually better at doing those things. And guys, young boys need, they're more high energy and they need space. And they have, so the, the, the green school has this wonderful thing called wall-lessness. So all their classrooms don't have walls. What the fuck? Yeah, it's just in the jungle. Because they oh. say, you know, kids can't be bouncing off the walls if there are no walls, right? Because the whole thing is like when if you give a young boy, for example, um, Coca-Cola and some pizza, like for lunch, which is, you know, classic, I guess, American diet or, or whatever at these, you know, kind of very conventional schools, then not only are they high energy, but they're also high on sugar. And then you ask them to sit down at a desk for four hours straight, a young boy, um, yeah and reach Shakespeare, of course they're going to not do well, right? And yeah. it just studies have proven that girls are actually better at doing that, at, like, sitting still. Um, but, like, young boys need to be a little bit more active. And instead, in biology, why don't you get them climbing up a tree, coming back to you with, like, five different types of insects that they've collected, and ask them okay. to identify them? How much more wow. would they learn from that day, right? Wow. That's, that's wow. experiential learning. That's- uh, they're interacting with the world. It's not yeah. just... Yeah. Earth warriors. Like, I'm, I'm sure. Like, I decided. Like, this episode is gonna be called Earth Warriors. <laughs> I mean, sure. I can go on about this. I can give how these kids. Okay, I'm gonna give you another one because it's just when I was there. This is what I, this is what was happening while I was there, and it's amazing. So, and this is how they involve the kids in their learning. So, first of all, this, this, the the um, teachers at the school don't ever kind of um, present themselves as experts in any field. I mean, they. They technically kind of are, but they don't present themselves that way. And the new kind of form of learning is that teachers are now facilitators. They're not, you know, stand-up teachers the way that we grew up with teachers. Because now you have Google. I, I might not need a teacher to explain to me how, you know, my respiratory system works. So then I can just Google respiratory system and I'll get a video on it, right? So yeah. they're facilitators. And, the way, and their, um, their role as a facilitator is to facilitate learning, to kind of, make sure there are different modalities as to what's going on as to what how um a certain subject is presented in a class if someone's more visual if someone's more kind of physical audio whatever so and to make sure that they can and it's a very kind of psychological skill um to make sure that every student's kind of uh talent i I think think that's actually pretty hard you know like to actually notice how each individual student learns best is it do they prefer to hear things do they prefer to see things or do they prefer to play and physically touch things? Yeah. Do, they do, do they do any type of tests before they can identify which student is like which type of learner or? 
they don't do any tests that I'm aware of, but let me just go into the example and, yeah. uh, and then you'll see um, how each student can take their own kind of path. Mm. Um, so for example, okay, I'm actually going to jump to another one. Um, <laughs> the, the previous okay, example okay, I wanted okay, to do... I feel like there's so much going on in your head at some point and you're just yeah, like yeah, trying yeah. to decide what to, what to share with the, with the world. Yeah, no, because the first example I was going to give you is how these kids are earth warriors and I'll get, I'll get back to that. Earth warriors. Okay, we're back. Awesome. Earth warriors. Example. Carry on. <laughs> okay, so I have two examples in my head. One is the earth warrior reference and one is um, talking about how to differentiate modes of teaching, right? So I'll get to that one first. Mm. Um, mm. So like I was saying, in, at the green school, there's something called thematics. So they don't have like chemistry and, and physics and math and biology as separate subjects. They have a theme. And so one theme can, would, would last about six weeks and it could be like something like communication. Okay. And you can learn about um, the evolution of the vocal cords, mm. the evolution of linguistics or study a specific language. You could start a radio show, a podcast. <laughs> you see how all these things are under communication? Yeah, I can, I can see a connection. Yeah, and like different kids would get into different kind of projects depending on what their interests were. And I thought that was brilliant, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and you, like, get to, you get their hands dirty, you know? You have, like, this seven-year-old with their own podcast, you know? Why not? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> they wouldn't be seven-year-olds. It's more like middle school and up. Okay. But the seven-year-olds would have something similar, just maybe don't start a podcast. But, like, <laughs> something else that I saw when I was there was, like, um, the campus was expanding, and there was a river in between the phase two of the campus. And so the teachers asked the kids, okay, so what do we do? And they're like, obviously we have to build a bridge. They're like, okay, how do it? So that thematic was building a bridge. And imagine that takes into, in, into consideration, like math, physics, biology, topography, geography, like everything. And the kids everything. built the damn bridge. They built the damn bridge. <laughs> they built the, I mean, you learn more in that thematic than you'll do sitting, you know, behind a desk doing your multiple like multiplication. Right. Okay. Yeah, for ever, yeah, man, for the longest time, you know, and I, I can imagine like the process that they go through, and I love that they just threw them into the situation, and they're like, "Yeah, okay, we need a bridge here. How are we going to build it?" And it's it's not just the fact that they actually built the bridges that they go on in their lives knowing that you know whatever problem they face, they will look at the problem and think to their in their heads like, and to themselves how can I fix this and what am I, what can I do about this? And it just empowers them to actually interact with the world effectively <laughs> to change yes. things around them and interact with the world properly. Man, damn, you know, I wonder, like, I can't imagine where humanity would be right now if everyone went to school like that. Exactly. Oh my God. And isn't oh that very God. relevant for the world we live in instead of like just passing the SATs? And I, I mean, how come this, like, it's so obvious to everyone, but why isn't it changing already? Like, I, I don't I get this. Because there's so many of us and so we're so fixated on numbers. So I need to know if you're a 4.0, 4.1, 3.7, you know, because that just makes life a lot easier and it takes time to have a shift in anything. And this is <laughs> evolution, if you will, because we, you know, like I said, like the educational systems stemmed out of the industrial revolution where mm. numbers and words were very important, you know, because it was very, it was a very clerical time. Um, so, but now we're, we're kind of in a, an environmental crisis. 
um, we have a lot of problems. Like we need to be a little bit more creative. We need to think, we need to be problem solvers. And those characteristics are actually much more valued nowadays than passing the SATs. And I'll give you an example. Like a lot of the Asian countries, and I know this sounds very like stereotypical, but I actually know this. Um, they get they they score really high on like the SATs or the um, TIMS or the PISA tests. Okay, and those mm-hmm. are the like classic international kind of standardized examinations that all kind of schools take. And if I'm not mistaken, Singapore's government and they have got like students that are really smashing these exams, like doing it extraordinarily well. But these students are so programmed to like pass exams and study well for exams that they're doing well at that. But they're not programmed to be critical thinkers and, um, you know, creative problem solvers and all that stuff. And Singapore's government is actually seeking out students like that now. And they're actually seeking out or like trying to kind of evolve their educational systems to incorporate some of these green school principles. By the way, it's not owned by the green school. It's like it's this new approach to education that the Finland, Finland has adopted. It comes from John Hattie, who's this amazing researcher who's done like the biggest, you know, case study on education and like pretty What's much. What's his name? John Hattie. Okay. So, uh, yeah, the Singaporean government is kind of like, okay, great. We've got all these students that are excellent at math and English and these languages, but like, and maybe can, you know, get an A on a science test, but we need like problem solvers. We need people to get their hands dirty, critical, like, critical thinkers, stuff like that. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, man. Uh, yeah, so that's the thing, and that's where we're going, and that's why whenever we talk about progressive approach to education, we talk about, like, relevant learning. What is it that the 21st century um, requires of us today? What kind of skills do students need when they graduate? What, why don't we ever talk about tolerance, you know, uh, adaptability and multiculturalism, these things, because the world is becoming a smaller place, and that's posing its own problems. We don't talk about it with kids. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to give you the Earth Warrior example, and then <laughs> I'll stop talking. <laughs> just because I think you'll like it. Yeah, please, please so, go ahead. Yeah, so when I was there, um, this was happening while I was there, and I saw it firsthand. It was insane. So this is where the whole kind of facilitator speech came from, because one of the teachers kind of went to the school and said, or to, to some of the teenagers and said, okay, listen, we are a green school. What do you think is our um, biggest impact? Where, where are we suffering in terms of our carbon impact? Like what is our biggest impact on the environment as a school? So the kids thought about it for a second and the teacher by no means was posing as an, exa- as an expert in this. They were gen- it was genuinely a discussion. And the kids were like, you know what? Um, transportation, because most of us come from abroad. So it's the air miles. Uh, that get us here that um, has substantial has a has a substantial carbon footprint, and a lot of the kids actually live about thirty to forty five minutes away from green school, mm-hmm. right, in another village in in Bali. So the teacher was like, "Okay, so how do we fix this?" So the kids again started to brainstorm, and they're like, "Let's come up with a a bio bus, where it's a school bus that will pick up the kids, and they're carpooling essentially, but at the same time they're going to create a fuel." for this bus that, that so it runs on biodiesel and they're going to create a, a, um, a, like an environmentally sustainable fuel for this bus. Okay. Oh, to lower okay. their carbon footprints of transport transportation. All so right. what do they do? 
they go to all their I forget the name, but it's kind of like a dikane or like a bakala. How do you say it? It's, it's like a kiosk or a small supermarket. No, I don't not, know. Not really a supermarket in Bali. It's like a place you can also have food. Like you go and you have like some stir fried vegetables and it's for like a dollar. And yeah, there's a small supermarket attached to it. A, ro- a okay. warung. Okay. A what? So, warung. Warung. Where, where is this? Bali, you said? This is in Bali. Okay. So these kids go to all their local bar- warungs around the area. And what's happening is they're noticing that the, the woman typically who's cooking, even the man, but usually it's a woman, um, is reusing their, their cooking oil, their frying oil for their vegetables about 200 times. Okay. okay? Which is highly carcinogenic, right? Yeah, you don't want to be yeah. frying your vegetables 200 times in the same oil, right? To like offer yeah. to people. No wonder it's so cheap. So what they started doing was taking, and I think they were buying the oil off of these warungs. It's like overused oil that anyway is not good for human consumption. Mm-hmm. And they were collecting all this oil to use for the biobus. And the kids and the teacher, so he, I think it was like a chemistry teacher or something, they went to their local like diesel, I don't know what... Um, facility and they all collectively learned and created biofuel for this new biobus <laughs> for the green school is that not crazy and how old were they huh how they're old were they they're like oh god i can't can you, can you believe it like hands yeah. on like seriously like entrepreneurs you know like they they solved three problems in one just <laughs> yeah so that's oh, that's my god. earth warrior story they were really incredible yeah, Earth Warriors. Huh? Earth yeah. Warriors. <laughs> I need to start printing out T-shirts like that too. But damn, man, like I, uh, there's so much to learn from all of that. It's insane. You know, it's interesting, like how how you got into it, and no wonder you left Sustainable City once they cut ties with Green School. You know, I can imagine that that was you know something you're passionate about and you really want to get involved with. And uh, knowing you, you want to put your energy in some place that you think is going to actually, you know something would spring forth from that energy that you invest let's say or yeah and i really believed in that and it really resonated with me this approach to learning and i saw it firsthand planted like i saw this stuff happening man how do you get a job as a teacher in one of these schools i think i'd love to do that for a few years actually quite a rigorous um process (laughs) anyone yeah Uh, because i asked and hello i'm not at all qualified to be a teacher but I asked just out of curiosity to, to also understand like how we would attract the right teacher for our school, right? Yeah. And it's quite rigorous and you have to like submit this video of who you are so they can actually get a sense. They're not interested in just, you know, receiving an essay or a cover letter from you. They're very holistic. That's mm. the thing. They want to get down to like the actual energy of a person, of, of their learning, of the, the interview, whatever. It's not just, they're not interested in text on a paper, you know, which is what I loved about them. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's not an easy thing to do. You might have to start like with a bachelor's and a master's in education, and then I can maybe put you in touch with someone there. <laughs> do, I, do I have to like actually be educated in education? Can't I just like take a very intense? Because like I'm a very hyperverbal person that that knows at least. I think I could be a good teacher in that scenario as long as I go through the proper training to be that teacher. You know. Because as you said, it's it's not even a teacher, it's a facilitator. And they just sit there and they facilitate how everyone grows. And I think being in that position, you know, there's so much to learn, you know, there's so much to absorb. But For I don't sure. think I'll go ahead and do a bachelor in education and a master's in education. You know, like that's not on my plate anytime <laughs> soon. Well, um, 
the way that their school is not standardized. I'm sure that their interview process is not standardized. So if you're someone who doesn't have a background in education, but you can show that you are fit for the role and you would fit into their culture, yeah. um, then they would probably consider. And you would yeah, I think, I think they'd be the type of people who would consider. That would be so dope. That would be like, amazing. Yeah, yeah man. Can, can you actually hook me up with someone to record a podcast episode with from Green School? Oh, Okay, we'll talk about it after. Yeah, let's let's yeah. make that happen. Um, but yeah, let's. Uh, yeah, I wanted to also explore a lot of what you said about your ideas. So, like after you left Sustainable City, and like with with your passion and everything, what what else did you go into after that? So, alongside my work at Sustainable City, I've been practicing yoga for a long time. And around the time we met, I'd gotten my yoga teacher training um, done, and I did like two others since then. Um, and I've also been studying to be a holistic health coach. What's a holistic um, health coach? So you you look at like your health holistically, and then you coach. Huh? So you look at someone's health from more than one aspect, rather than just exactly. focus on one. Okay. Rather than just focusing on diet and exercise, which is like kind of the typical approach when we look at. Well, I don't like to say that, but when we kind of look at someone, it's like, okay, what are you eating? And are you moving? And all, although that's really important, and when I do sit with a client, those would be things I consider with someone. Mm. Um, I, I mean, I consider uh, when I look at their kind of lifestyle, but it's more than just that. Um, it's looking into their kind of aspects um, of of the different things in their life. And we like to call this primary foods um, that feed their soul. And we call it primary food because we find it to be much more important, the soul food, than the food that's on your plate, which we call secondary food. So for example, um, your area of relationship, like if you feel fulfilled in your relationships, you've got good friends around you, you don't have any toxic people in your life, you feel fulfilled with your community, that's more important than me telling you to eat kale every day. Yeah. Does that make sense? Because that's yeah. gonna feed you more than the kale is gonna feed you. Yeah, it, it's a type of it's type of like when you eat. Sure, you're trying to digest the food to get energy so that you can move. But this is what you get from your community is a different type of energy that feeds into your into your soul, just like you said. Yeah, food, soul food, and we call it primary food. And the the man who created the school that I graduated from, Joshua Ross Ross Rothen. Awesome. Uh, how did you how did you graduate from it though like where did you go and what did it's you... an online course it's mm. called it's from the institute of integrative nutrition iin it's quite famous now a lot of people are doing this course and i'm super happy about it because it means we're like kind of upgrading our collective consciousness about this together yeah, which is yeah. amazing and by the way yeah. a lot of the kind of healing we do as or kind of the healing that we prescribe or talk about with clients is to do with food the food can heal you food is thy medicine right yeah. But um, but it's also a lot of stuff that's off the plate. And he actually would argue that, you know, that soul food is more important than the food on your plate. That's why he calls it primary food. And it's not just relationship and community. It's your career. Do you feel a sense of purpose in your day-to-day life? It's your physical activity. Um, it's how you feel about yourself. If I'm constantly in a negative space or I have negative self-talk going on all the time and I'm berating myself and putting myself down... I need to kind of unwind that stuff first before I can even think about, you know, having a healthy diet. Yeah, yeah, but I, I think like I, I've talked to people about this and it's just sort of very difficult to try to change that mental mind map that everyone's always going through within their own yeah. heads. Right? Like, how do you actually get rid of all of that self-dialogue that isn't really bringing you anywhere? 
how do you let go of that so you can go to something that's more healthy that's more that's that's that gives you more food for your soul let's say because as as such like you have things that feed your soul sure but there's things that really eat away at you very slowly for a very long time until mm-hmm. you know until like life itself seems like healthy but how do you let go of all of that exactly so that's the kind of work that we that we do and that we talk about and um and again it's more like wellness or well-being or health coach it's not weight loss or muscle gain because when you think about weight loss and muscle gain it very much is that that whole like kind of calories in calories out mentality whereas if i can get you to stop having these self-limiting beliefs you might not lose weight although usually weight loss comes as like um uh, a consequence a positive consequence if someone needs to lose weight um from this kind of approach to to health But if I can get you to stop thinking about yourself in a very negative way, you'll see that your well-being or your health or your happiness increases. And that's what my goal is. That's what I want to get into a little bit more. How is it that you actually change how someone thinks about himself? I think that's really hard. Yeah, so it's a process. And that's why it's a six-month program. Yeah, because it takes time. And depending on where the person is, in their area of relationship or their area of self-talk or their area of physical exercise, depending on where they are. And we call all these things it's the circle of life, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, there are all these different comp- components of primary food. Um, and depending on where they are and what's going on for them. And by the way, this changes as the seasons change. Like today I might be, you know, feeling one thing, but then I'm also eating something different, you know, in six months when it's really hot or really, really cold. And like, Things are always changing, which is why six months is really important because things, it takes time for these things to unfold and it takes time for someone to unlearn certain things. Mm. Um, but it's a process. It's a, first, it's a process of awareness. There are certain exercises you do. Um, there is sometimes, it's just about hearing yourself think. Hearing yourself, sorry, talk out loud because that helps you think about what's going on in your life. So sometimes all I need to do is hold space for somebody and they just talk. And once they talk, and that's the beauty about the school is that we feel like there's, there's this notion of everyone knows the answer. Everyone has that divine kind of intelligence within them. So if I can just hold space for someone, you just talk through your problems, you sometimes get to that space of, oh, that's the solution or, oh, that's the problem. And as a coach, I'm trained to ask you the right questions. I'm trained to get you thinking outside the box. And sometimes all it is you know, all that the he- that healing requires is a space to just speak. to just let it all go, yeah. Let, let it yeah. all out of you and let just be able to see it. Exactly. So it's a lot like therapy too. Mm. It can be, it can be. Although we come yeah. we bring it back down to food. Um, there are a few exercises we do that's outside of food. Of course, meditation and breath work is really important, mm-hmm. depending on the person, you know. Sometimes it could be journaling, sometimes it's just like we work on the kind of thought processes that are going in their head. And I don't have the same scope of practice as a nutritionist or a, a psychologist or psychotherapist. Um, so I don't deal with like major, major health problems. Mm. Like if someone, I don't know, has a e- major eating disorder or um, is dealing with domestic abuse or has diabetes or cancer, like this is totally out of my scope of practice. Mm-hmm. It'd be someone like you or I, you, you, you and I, who just is like stuck in something or, um, doesn't feel good about something, you know, not very, yeah. very serious yeah. ailments, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. 
like what I what I noticed so far, like I've been thinking about this, is that like whenever we want to focus on solving a problem, we always look at the the end result of the problem. Let's say like I'm I'm a I'm just a not I'm not a confident guy, and I I just want to be more confident, right? So that's the end goal of me being confident, and mm. and then, then I look at that and I I I punish myself whenever I see myself not acting confident, whatever whatever the idea of confidence is for me in my own head even though like i don't think anyone really understands what confidence really is like if we take anything uh, a concept like that or a state of being it's really hard to dissect what it really means you know but then we say like yeah i want to achieve this ideal of being confident and maybe you've met people in your life that have, that embody that ideal of confidence every now and then and every one of them, I think, embodies it in a very different way. But you see, you try to compare yourself to them and you try to act maybe a bit like them. And you're always focusing on that. And because of that, you never really reach it because there's a million other things that go behind being confident that, you know, confident people never try to be confident either, you know. So where do you start when it comes to actually achieving that type of state of being? And I, I looked at it and I was like, yeah, you, you never have to actually focus on losing weight you have to focus on your lifestyle and because of your lifestyle you end up losing weight right so if i want to focus on becoming more confident then i have to live a lifestyle that enriches me in a way that can get me to embody my own confidence in the proper way so it's just i think goes down back to the healthy soul foods that you're talking about having good relationships for example living to my own standards so if i expect myself to go to the gym or uh, go to this class or to work on this project and actually go through with it i think by empowering ourselves day by day by focusing on those little things and building up our character that's when the final thing the final state of being comes into place and that's when confidence comes into place and i'm sure you deal with that a lot like when you deal with clients and they come to you and they tell you I, I want to be more like this or, uh, you know, and you have to look so much deeper into those daily actions that people don't really pay too much attention to, but they just expect themselves to be in a certain state all of a sudden. When, you know, when you, you might want to be in the state when you're around people and you're not always around people, maybe you're around people 20%, 30% of your day. But the rest of the time you're, you're alone with yourself and you're doing things with yourself. And if you're not, living those 70% living that 70% of your time properly and to your own standards and and I don't know every I think everyone has to find their own set of, of values that they want to live by too and if you don't do those small things throughout your day throughout that 70% of your day and your relationship with yourself that if you don't do that with yourself it won't reflect with your relationships with other people but you expect yourself for it to just project itself in front of other people and that just doesn't make sense you know it doesn't work first work on those small things that are inside of you and then go into trying to reach that state of being by actually embodying that at a very earlier stage and then you won't have to try and be it <laughs> yeah Allah. yeah Allah. honestly what you just spoke about and let's say if your thing is confidence I was just thinking that that would probably, like, if we were working together, that could take up three or four sessions worth of time. Mm -hmm. Trying to, we would be interviewing your subconscious as to 
uh, wondering where these beliefs come from. What are those beliefs? Why are they there? How do you define confidence? Who are you comparing yourself to? What are the thoughts going on in your head? What are the facts and what are subjective that you're just telling yourself? Things like that. And then why? Why do you feel like you need to have that level of confidence? Why do you feel like you need to be walking around like, you know, whoever it is that you're looking up to, you know? And where do all these things come from? So it's really, it's deep work, you know? But it's, it's great and it's fun and it's, there's a lot of healing to be done. And honestly, when I was doing this course, I felt like I was being coached before I was trained to be a coach. And I went through so much healing just by mm. being a part of this course, just by the That's learning. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. it's great. Um, but yeah, so, and I'm also just really passionate about it, not just to deal with people one-on-one, -on -one, but to take it to schools. And honestly, this all stemmed from my experience at the Green School like four years ago, because I saw this stuff, this work happening at the Green School. And I was like, can you imagine if we had more mindful kids walking this earth? How we would eradicate like violence and like, you know, in one generation. I think Dalai Lama says that if every single child is meditating, we would eradicate wars in one generation. Um, mm. If we, you know, taught our, our children how to be more mindful in their relationships, their relationships with others and relationship, the relationship they have with themselves. Yeah, to communicate know? properly, to understand what's important and what isn't, to know what to prioritize, to know who they are and how to deal with their emotions, to take responsibility for their own emotions rather than saying, yeah, you made me feel this way. No, you take control over how you feel, how you respond to the things that life throws your way. To at least give them the mindset that, you know, when they see that this place needs a damn bridge, they go ahead and fucking build a bridge. To give them that mindset of yeah i'm i'm empowered i can i can actually interact with this world and get things done and we can all get things done but we i don't think a lot of us have the belief that we can try to find a solution for any of these problems you know and if we don't have the belief then we're, we're never going to approach it with an open childlike mind that can try to find different things that don't really relate to each other and still make a solution out of them just like they found that oil and therefore, inevitably, maybe not by a lot, but they still decreased the rate of um, possible cancer-like situations happening in, in Bali. But, uh, and, and, you know, decreased the carbon footprint too. And I think I thought that example was, was just wonderful. Um, yeah, I hope so. Like, I hope we could adopt meditation in schools and then we have to find a way to actually teach children a method of meditation, maybe start with yoga because it's more embodied and children won't get bored and then they'll have the patience to sit down more and more and just be one with themselves. And then like, imagine like how, how enlightened an entire species can be if we're all at that level and there's nothing really stopping us i mean like if we actually adopt these types of things and we do them intelligently and properly and everyone embodies that type of state there's no there's no knowing what we can do if we collectively get together towards a goal and and collectively get together not just as we are right now but in that better state that we'd be in because we're living true to ourselves and we're enlightened within our own states of being i think that's at least my ideal of the future where everyone individually really shines, you know, for who they are uh, and not what they always try to be. And then 
and then just like I, I can't imagine how beautiful of a world that can that can be and I'm just I'm looking forward to that in a sense you know I feel like it's coming and I think like I need to feel like it's coming because otherwise it won't come <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah yeah otherwise it's too doom and gloom I mean, it's. I think belief start like it's all starts with belief. Like when these children looked at the at the at the empty space between like where the bridge needed to be built, they looked at that and they they had an, an like utter belief that they can get this done. They had no doubt that like we together we can we can do this. I don't see exactly. why anything is stopping us, you know. And imagine like if uh, like we all had that day by day, but it's just like if we didn't believe that we could build a bridge, it wouldn't come up as a solution. Even if it came up as a solution, we'd be like, okay, we need to build a bridge. But then we're just going to say, yeah, but it's impossible for us to build a bridge. We're only kids, you know. And then, exactly. then there's there's no there's no momentum forward. There's no change. There's nothing. And then we all stay where we are because we don't believe that we can actually do something but like if we actually invested the energy our mind is going to open up so many different doors for us to find the solution that we don't go for and that just you know a part of it pisses me off how little people believe in themselves and how much they can still believe in others and and they don't put that belief in themselves you know they don't respect themselves they don't expect from themselves a lot either you know because you have this relationship with yourself in your head you know everyone's relationship with themselves is very different and a lot of people, it's like you said, a self-sabotaging type of talk going on. And, <laughs> and because of that, they feel like their value, they're not valuable. They feel like because they're not living up to what their ego is always telling them to, to be like, you know, their super ego is always up there telling you, ah, you should have acted this way. You shouldn't have done this. Ah, you know, he's going to, he, like, you, you think he's going to hate you because you did that or she's not going to like you because of this. And then you're always in a state of self-doubt and in a state of thinking, you know, I'm not worth much. And if you don't think you're worth much, then you're not going to be worth much because you're not going to act out in a way that adds value to anything. And you're just going to be taking value from yourself constantly because of that. And your soul slowly dies away. And it's not fun for anyone, you know. And how do I convince people to actually believe in themselves a lot more? I I I'm, I don't know. I really don't know. I just think like belief is so weird. You know, it can come and it can go so quickly, and I don't know what can start it or what can take it away. Um, I think sometimes that it's related to fear. Um, it can be related to trauma. I don't. It it can be big traumas, but I don't necessarily mean big traumas. It can be small traumas. Um, and like you're saying, like. It could come from childhood in the sense that imagine you grew up in a school where the teachers and adults around you believed in you, mm. right? To build yeah. that bridge. So imagine the opposite, where you were ta- constantly taught that you can't achieve anything unless you get an A on this paper, and you're not getting A's on this paper because you're not interested in Shakespeare. So then, you, you know, it's this self-fulfilling prophecy, if you will, where now here you are as an adult, 18, 25, 30, and you receive these messages of, you know, from the world that you're not worthy of taking up space or whatever. Now, I'm not, it's not to say that it's, you know, it's the external world's fault because you can't, you have to also look within. And it is your, your space and your responsibility to, um, the thoughts in your head are your responsibility too. But yeah. I'm just saying like, you know, I find myself being very empathetic and compassionate towards 
people almost no matter what, almost unconditionally, because I've always taken into consideration uh, the kind of upbringing they've had and the kind of socialization or conditioning that we've all had. We all are subjected to the conditioning of our lives. And some of these patterns are very difficult to unpattern, to unlearn, to process. Yeah, to, to, to let go of, you yeah. know, to, to accept to not be a part of you anymore, to like not grip them so tightly anymore and just let them let them go away. You know, you don't need them. But because of that fear, because of you're not sure or you're always you've always been used to being in that state for so long you don't feel like there's any other state that you could be in that you could inhabit so you're afraid of letting go and seeing what else could take its place and and there's a scary part in that because you know it so well even if it's bad for you you know it and yeah. there's there's a safety in that and, and people don't want to not feel safe you know exactly. but you need to you need to feel safe with being unsafe because you're not going to get hurt you're you're here. You're alive. You're you won't die anytime soon. You'll you know hopefully not get sick, but you're you're here and letting go of this pattern of being and letting letting go of something that's really bad for you is definitely scary. Or it might be a relationship with someone that's toxic. It might be a habit that you can't let go of. It might be I don't know. It can be a million things that are bad for you, but you hold on to them so tightly because you don't know what it's like what it can be like if you let go but if, if you let go like what it can be like is much better than what is right now you know as much as it might be scary it's also there's so much hope you know and you have to believe that it can be something different you have to believe that something different can happen and can be something better and because of that belief you'll i think embody that belief and you'll, you'll see it through your actions and because of that good things would end up happening more often I, th- I think that's how, how I see it, at least. I mean, that's exactly what the school actually talks about, is that the more that you let go of things that are not true and that are negative in your life, where you kind of, you know, there's a higher self and the lower self. So all these things vibrate very low. It's low vibrational, makes you heavy. And to be your be- the best version of yourself is to be connected to your higher self. So light and positive and... Um, with kind of a strong kind of sense of who you are um, and joyful and not envious. Can you see how like envious and jealousy and sadness and anger can be heavy and yeah. being joyful and being um, simple and being just positive is a, it's a light vibration. So mm. that's higher self versus lower self. And they say that, you know, when you let go of all that heavy junk and the kind of stuff that you don't actually need and that doesn't does, that doesn't serve you and you let go of a lot of the masks and sometimes that makes you m- much more vulnerable and the more vulnerable you are the more susceptible you are to connection which is a great thing because you're more real and the more you really become the more in alignment you are with your life and then he talks about the synchronicities of the universe things that are meant to be in your life start to just pop up in your life when you start to be more real with yourself when you're more connected to your inner truth. I mean, to let, let yourself be vulnerable, even if it's scary. Yeah. And they, they talk about that in that in the area of relationship. Like, if you want to have a meaningful relationship, you've got to be vulnerable. you got to allow yourself to be vulnerable, and which, which can sometimes just mean speaking your truth. And for some people, that's easy. For some people, that's very difficult. If you keep wearing masks, you're never going to have a real connection, something of value. You know what I'm saying? Something that pierces deep down inside, something you can actually feel properly. Exactly. Yeah. But, but it also has implications for your life. When you're real and you let go of all this stuff, 
it's just like you said, the, the, the universe kind of aligns with you and things start to happen for you. And it's, yeah, it's not easy, but it's a wonderful thing. But um, mm-hmm. one of the tools, you know, how you're asking me, like, how do you get someone to, to deal Actually with... Actually change their mindset. Yeah. yeah negative self-talk. Like, yeah. One of the tools like that I could, you know, or a question that I would bring to the, to the table for someone would be, and it kind of relates to what we're talking about now could be um, what would you do if you really, really loved yourself? And what would you do right now if you really respected yourself? So for example, if you're in a job that is not serving you and your boss is super abusive, you know, verbally abusive to you and you know, doesn't appreciate you, if you really loved yourself and appreciated yourself, and those are the only two thoughts in your, in your system right now, no thoughts of the future and I might not find another job and no one's gonna love me because I'm unemployed and oh my God, I'm not gonna have any money, I'm gonna end up homeless, like all these thoughts that can come up from like quitting your job right and i'm gonna die tomorrow because i i quit my job without all of these thoughts in your head so we come to a space of complete like silence and then you ask yourself what would i do what is the decision i would make if i really loved myself would i allow this person to talk to me the way that they do would i still be at this job would i still Mm. be in this relationship Mm. does that make sense Um, so, so you're saying, so you just take it as a matter of fact that you love yourself and what is it that you, like, what action do you need to take if you actually did love yourself or respected yourself? And find like that out. Did, because if I, mm. if I say that if you did love yourself, then I'm insinuating that you don't right now. I would say if you get rid of all the other thoughts and fears and just take a moment to think about in a space of really loving myself right now, what is the decision that I would make? Really loving yourself and connecting with your, uh, and um, respecting yourself. Does, does that make sense? Because yeah. when yeah. you come from that space, um, and this can happen with people who do love themselves, but like if you really, really do and you really, really um, respect yourself, you will make decisions according to, according to that. To your standard of, of who you are, to your self-esteem, exactly. to your self-respect, exactly. uh, who you, yeah, yeah. To, so then so you'll like, align yourself. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, then you'll align yourself properly in your own world. You know, you wouldn't be at a job you don't love anymore. And sure, there might be a, a period in your t- in your life where you're unsure, and and it's not nice being unsure, and you want to have like, I don't know, a source of income or some security. But then because you went through that phase, you'll find some place where you fit in a little bit more. And because of that, you'll be in an entirely different frame of being and you'll live a much happier life where you can respect yourself even more and then align yourself even a little bit more than that. And it's just step by step until you're actually you, the you that you you need to be, I guess, the individual proper you springing forth <laughs> into this world yeah and it's it's, yeah, it's also funny. a matter of like self-acceptance you know because sometimes mm-hmm. we do get in the space of oh i might not be good enough for something else or i'm not i might not be good enough for someone else and they don't want to get out of a relationship so they start to weigh you know their, the pros and cons and they start to give a lot of weight to some of these negative things okay. and so and which is why they, they, they feel like they're in a place where they're stuck and they don't want to make a decision either way and they can't make a decision. But if you fully accept yourself, like, okay, I'm not the best at this, but I am really good at that. And no matter what, with my, you know, um, positive qualities and with my qualities where I could, you know, afford a little bit of work, I love and accept myself no matter what. And you start to value that more and give more weight to that. Everything else starts to lose value and lose weight in your pro and con mm. list. Meaning the... 
oh, I might not find someone else or I might not find a better job to suit me because I'm so bad at this or bad at that. All those thoughts starts to lose a bit of weight. Does that make sense? Where you might still have those thoughts at the back of your head, but they don't weigh as much anymore. Um, I mean, it's a full on exercise, but, and it takes, it's actually a bit of a meditation because you actually have to put it into practice of what does my day look like when I fully love and accept myself? What am I eating when I love, fully love and accept myself? And actually now I'm like jumping a little bit, but the way that you eat and the way that you have food on your plate is a direct representation of the way you feel about yourself and your life. Do you take time to like sit down and eat mindfully or always in a rush? Are you, you know, eat, talking about people who have disordered eating? Are you embarrassed when you're eating? Do you allow yourself to eat food that feels good, that tastes good? Or are you very limiting with what you're eating? Um, how does your plate look? Do you feel like you deserve a nice- Yeah, because, because I see that with myself too. Like I, I eat food really quickly. So like when I have a plate of food in front of me, like I devour it in like five minutes, maybe less. And, and like, and what's on your plate? Is it quality food? Is it leftover? Is it warmly? Let's, let's say like, like for me, as long as it's not like, I'm, I think, I think my diet is pretty healthy, but as a student, you know, you're going to eat food from yesterday or you're going to, you're not always going to be eating the most perfect food, but I'm, I'm talking about this, the state of being I am when I am yeah. eating my food. I'm always like, uh, you know, there's the either checking your phone or you're listening to music or there's there has to be something going on like you're watching TV and then like I eat it so quickly and I'm, I'm I just like don't give myself the chance to breathe between every every bite and the next I just you know I swallowed this one okay next next spoon is in my mouth it's like again. a job it's like really a job to get to yeah continue it's with like my a day. duty yeah. 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 yeah, I don't we mind for really just sit down, that. calm down, and eat this eat this thing. <laughs> we all suffer from that in some way or another. Um, <laughs> so yeah, yeah tell, tell me, tell me about your actually like. So you took this course, and are you actually like dealing with clients right now and hooking people up, leading to better lives? So what I'm doing is I'm so I finished this course, and I'm actually doing another one with them just to focus on gut health, and then I'll be doing one on hormone health. Okay. To, to have something a little bit more specialized because I'm really interested in that stuff. Um, but I'm trying to bring this stuff to young people. So that's why I've been based out of Kuwait a little bit more because mm. I'm working alongside a school to hopefully bring us into the, to set up workshops to bring us into the school. And I'm working with a youth achievement center um, where they gave me the green light to now set up workshops uh, for the students that come in there. Okay, that's Basically, dope. Yeah, so it's, it's amazing because I feel like I'm more of an educator. I'm really good at... Um, giving information to people in a way that yes. they can... Yeah. Yes, exactly. And I'm being very picky about... Well, I sh sh probably shouldn't be saying this, but it's the truth. I'm picky about clients. You know, mm. unless I really feel like I can hold space for someone and that we are aligned and there's really good chemistry, I'm not necessarily taking on clients um, because it, it's just a waste of energy and time for both of us. You yeah, know? I can imagine. And, you know, you have to find someone compatible with you too so you can actually yeah. get through to them properly. The best way that you can create as much value as possible in exactly. in a life, you know, you're you're yeah. you're being smart about this, you know, you're you're making you're utilizing your energy more and you're creating more value because of that. Yeah. Um, it doesn't serve yeah. anyone if there's no chemistry, right? It's for both mm. of us. It's not about me, you know, just being picky, but it's also sometimes the client isn't aware that they should be picky. You shouldn't just go mm. to any doctor or any therapist. You go because there's chemistry because mm. then it serves them more, right? Yeah. Uh. Um, 
But I mean, that comes that comes from experience, maybe knowing what type of client you think you'd work with best, or or not. You know, I think that's not the easiest thing to be able to to decide quickly. Yeah, and that's the thing we were trained in, the, like as part of the school, as part of the course. He's like, you know, all of you guys are here because you want to be healers, you want to help, you're nurturers, you're empaths. So you're going to want to help everyone. And he drilled it into our heads. Don't accept just any client. Find one that really resonates with you or that mm-hmm. you have chemistry with because it's going to serve you both. You can't help everyone. You can't help that, you know, newly pregnant woman, that man who's 75 years old who just finished chemo or that, you know, young girl who has, um, I don't know, a problem at school. You can't help them all. Find the niche that works for you and then stick to it. And of course, in the beginning, I was accepting everyone because like, no, I want to help anyone that comes my way. And then I slowly realized, no, I don't have chemistry with everybody and I'm not going to serve anyone, everyone, right? I have yeah. to, to something, to a niche that, that I can get through to. So yeah, yeah makes absolute sense. Yeah. yeah. But like, there's something I wanted to explore with you, you know, like looking at your life in general, you know, the fact that you were, you said you were born and raised in the States and like your your mom is Armenian and your, your father's Kuwaiti and, and you like grew up in you grew up in so many different places and you're always traveling around and like i personally always think that the people that get that type of experience are the ones that at least get to know themselves a lot faster than most other people because they're exposed to simply so much more <laughs> and and you know like as as we said like when someone loves themselves enough to ask themselves the question am i in the job that i love and then they they decide, you know, screw this. I'm quitting this job right now because I know this isn't me. Even though I don't know what is me, I just know this isn't me and I won't accept being n- not me any any longer. And then there's that phase where you're just lost and you're, you're, you're sort of clueless. And, you know, you might have days where you wake up and like you're super happy because you're you're free from that thing that was sucking your soul for the longest time and then days where you wake up and like you're super depressed because you don't know where your life is going because we always need an aim or a direction and from what you told me i feel like you're the type of person who went through that up and down type of phase a lot in your life and i wanted to i wanted you to share your experience with that with everyone here um up and down you mean like not knowing because like whenever 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 there's any type of change that happens there's always that transport transformational phase where everything goes down like a, like very much down before it goes back up again you know even if even if like when you quit your job you were at a certain level uh when you quit it you you you'll usually be worse off for a little bit but then when you go back up you'll be you'll be way better off than you were at that job. And, it, and you can see that with learning curves as well. Like if you if you want to learn something, you'll usually uh, start progressively like and consistently getting good at it. And then at some point, you'll find yourself being very, very bad at it. And then after two weeks, but you still continue to do it. You know, after two, three weeks, you come back again and, and you're, you're amazing again. Like that happened to me with when I was learning German, for example. After a while, uh, I had like these two, three weeks where I, I didn't know how to speak German. I didn't know how to speak Arabic. I didn't know how to speak English. I didn't know how to speak anything. You know, I just I was in a state where my mind was confused. I was confused. I didn't know how to communicate myself properly. My personality was was in shambles. But then, like after three weeks of that, 
I no longer, like it came all of a sudden, I no longer had to think about what someone, like if someone said a sentence to me in German, I don't have to translate this in my head before I understand it. No, I just understood it instantly. But I had to go through three weeks of, of shit before I could, I could get to that. And that's always in every transformational phase, but I'm taking it to, to, to a life lifetime, you know, of, of, of your experiences with, you know, you, you have so many ideas and I want you to at least, you know, get a little bit more into like what, what ideas you have and like what, what else drives your passion, but how, you know, when, whenever you were in that transformational phase, how you actually approached it and went ahead to something more beautiful for you. Um, well, I don't know really how to answer that, except that it just takes time. And to... Maybe it's best if we like tackle a proper like scenario in your life when you went from one thing to the next and you went through that stage of doubt. Do you yeah, think I you're okay think... with that? Yeah, sure. Do you have one in mind or do you want me to bring something up? I don't know you enough to, <laughs> to tell like... you. Are <laughs> <laughs> you thinking about something that I don't know? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure you've been through that. I mean, uh... I have, and I'm trying to reflect now. Um, I think it's just time and being that kind of like self-aware person, and that mm. changes as the years roll on. Because when I was 21, the kind of self-awareness I had was so different than when I was 31. Um, but always trying to be true to that and allowing time to just pass a little bit to get over whatever it is that it is I'm going through whatever tough time it is I'm going through whatever space of self-doubt I'm going through and then Mm. I don't know me personally again I'm no expert in this at all but like I'm very much a curious cat so even though something is not working for me in one area of my life then I, I let that go to sleep for a bit and sometimes it can be very painful to revisit that area but then I start focusing on another area and I don't know if this works for everyone or anyone, but that's just me. I'm very, I'm very diverse and multifaceted in that sense. So, and just like in the natural world, like an ecosystem in nature, like an ecosystem is much stronger when there's more diversity. That's why biodiversity is so important. And that's why polyculture is so much more important than monoculture. So like growing one type of crop like corn is less, um, is less, um, how do you say, um, is not as strong and is not as uh, beneficial for the environment as opposed to polyculture. So having diverse range of crops going, growing. Rotating, rotating crops, you mean? Not rotate, not rotating, having more than one crop, having more than one species on, in the soil, in that, on that land, on that plot okay. of land. Versus one. So what I'm trying to get to is diversity, biodiversity, is what strengthens an ecosystem, okay? And I find that with my life, like, sometimes I find myself giving this lecture to my brother, who's kind of the opposite of me. He's very, like, single-minded focused, and he has one or two things that he's into, and sometimes I'm like, bro, you just need to diversify a little bit. So if things are not going so well with your career, your, your whole life is not going to collapse because you can go and, you know, engage in this hobby or that hobby or whatever, so again, it's not for everyone and it's not like the ultimate prescription of life and I'm no expert, mm. but that's for me how things just feel better. So, so you, find, you find yourself hopping, not, I wouldn't say hopping, but you know, you, you have so many different hobbies that you can always 
rely on to to feed yeah. that part of yourself that needs to be doing something that you feel is progressing you in a certain way. Yeah, and which where I'm getting a, a level of satisfaction. So let's say my career is not working right now, or that specific mm. area of my career. Let's say it's a, you know whatever was happening at Sustainable City, for example. And mm. I was quite like upset about it, and I was dwelling a little bit. And of course, if that's all I had, I would feel quite self. Um, self-conscious and I'd have you know a level of self-doubt and not understanding where my future is going and it would really consume a large portion of my life if you took my life as a pie chart but because I had the health coaching and the yoga and all those things going on I knew that okay whatever is going on in that part of my life might not be not might not be in its ultimate optimum state but I know mm -hmm. I'm actually doing some really good work with my yoga and my students are always coming back to me mm -hmm. and I know I'm really helping people and so, right so you now, had different you had different pillars in your life that you, you could, could rely say. on as well you yeah. could say. or like I had health and wellness goals you know I wanted mm -hmm. to climb a particular mountain once I got to the top it was amazing I wanted to learn how to yeah. kite surf and that was the best gift I ever gave myself and it was yeah. a mission it took me forever, but once I achieved it, <laughs> I was like, hell yeah, you know, I freaking did it. So, yeah. how, how long does it take to learn how to kite surf? It doesn't have to take that long if you live somewhere with wind, but I started in Dubai and there's not a lot of wind here. And I started in the, in the non-windy season. As a beginner, I had no idea what I was doing. And I wish someone taught me, like, don't worry, you're not progressing because there's no wind. So in my head, I just sucked, you know? Why am I not on this border? But, like, poor little me didn't know that, you know, it's because there's no wind. And then I now had a really bad accident, so. Okay. Uh, but now you know you need some wind. <laughs> yeah, so that's why I tell people, like, listen, if you're going to learn in Dubai, like, you're in the winter, get over and done with in, like, a week or two. Don't stop. Be committed. It's not a sport that you can just dabble with. You got to be committed and it's fine. But for me, it took me like six months. It took forever and I had this accident, so I quit. And I did, yeah, I had what, a lot of what, like... What accident? I had this accident where I lost complete control of the kite and there are different like safety measures that you can take to depower the kite. And that's the point. Like if you lose control, you don't want the kite to have power over you. But this particular kite that I'd rented I had a new system, had a system I wasn't familiar with. So once I lost control and I crashed and I had all these problems, I couldn't depower the thing. So it had full power over me and it was just dragging me. And I hit my head on a rock and I was bleeding. And I was, it was horrible. So by the time I got rescued and I don't know what, I came home and I, I thought I had a mild concussion because I slept for like 16 hours straight. I didn't even shower. Like it was pretty bad. Um, and I was like, I, I had a talk with myself and I was like, look, Alia, I know whatever you put your mind to. You have to achieve, but like this might be a sport that's too extreme for you, and it's okay if you never learn it. It's just not for you. You're gonna lose a limb. I was like, fine, this sport's not for me. So I let it go for like six months, and yeah. then I was like, no, there's no way. Look, if that guy can do it, I can do it. If that girl could do it, I can do it, and it's beautiful. I want to learn, so I went back in. Um, and I <laughs> so, <laughs> you learned. Problem, huh? Yeah, you learned it. That's awesome. Yeah, and guess what? How can you imagine how much like? Um, self-confidence I gained from that when there was a lot of self-doubt so it all kind of transpires so I might be facing self-doubt in my career or with a particular area of my career but like I have so much satisfaction from the again from the teaching uh, that I was doing and from some of the coaching I was doing and then I just mm. learned this new sport that I thought I was going to fail at so that helps to you know alleviate some of those kind of negative feelings or symptoms that come up when one area of your life is not going the way you want it to go Does yeah, that make sense? Yeah. yeah you're you're molding you're molding yourself from different different sides and you have like i said different pillars that you can rely on because i'm sure like after you had that 
you know, maybe a concussion. I don't know if it was a concussion or not. Uh, so you want you want definitely went through a phase like that phase of self doubt and that phase of you know, I'm, was I right to even want to do this? Uh, should I have been doing this to begin with? Uh, and th- then like it's not nice doubting yourself at all. And you went through that, but I'm sure you like after six months you changed your mind and then you were like hell yeah I'm doing this. But during those six months, I'm sure you were doing like so many different other things as well that showed you that you're actually that proved to you that you you can believe in yourself because you're you're still good at so many other things. It, you can also be good at that, even though you went through a bad situation in it, with it, you are going to conquer it. You know, at least you had things in your life that rejuvenated that belief in yourself that you're actually someone that can accomplish whatever that girl, you know, if she can kite surf or he can kite surf. Are we back? We're good. Yeah. All right. Back to the, because <laughs> like I was, I was speaking with so much energy, man. Like I was, I was really hitting, hitting the point. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. So I was just saying, like you, you went through that transformational phase with your, like when you, let's say when you got that, I don't know if it was a concussion or not. Like I said, and afterwards, you, you were still, you were still acting out within your daily life in a way for the next six months that proved to you that you're actually someone that can believe in themselves because you're still good at so many other things and you're doing them well and they're, you're driven by them and you're getting out of bed every day ready to face this thing, you know, whatever it was during those six months that you weren't kite surfing. Then afterwards you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do this, you know, and you did it and you conquered that fear, you know, and I'm sure like, yeah, if I hit my head with something like I, like there's nothing more valuable <laughs> than than your head, you know. <laughs> and I'd just be terrified for that to happen. Um, but I'm proud of you that you actually went ahead and did it. You know, that's fucking awesome. Um, that wasn't easy. How how difficult is kite surfing? Can you take us through the process? Yeah, sure. So look, it's it's quite a technical sport and it's unlike any other kind of board sport or ski sport that I've done because like snowboarding or skiing or wakeboarding or wake surfing so like land versus water um, you typically will ride your first time Hanny if I take you snowboarding tomorrow or skiing tomorrow you're gonna like not feel comfortable you'll be really tense you'll be scared but then you'll eventually after like 10 or 15 minutes of coaching and maybe a few you know falls you'll get down the mountain might not be very graceful, but like you'll get down the mountain, you'll ride, depending yeah. on the person, right? Some people are just better learners than others, but you'll get the experience. With kite surfing, um, it you need like first some theory. So maybe it's like scuba diving where you don't actually get in the water until like you learn a few things. So with kiting, you have this toy kite that you know can barely lift like lift up a cat. So it's very little power, and you learn how to steer this thing first so it's maybe like going in a buggy before you get behind the steering wheel of, a, of an actual car on the road so okay. you you do that first and you need a, you don't need wind for that and then finally you have the actual kite that can actually lift you up and power you and you take some time learning on land so this is the theoretical portion of like learning how to kite surf so you're on land with a kite that's powerful and you're learning how to steer this thing you're learning the safety measures of like what to do when you know you lose a bit of control and at all times you have an instructor with you obviously mm. so there's a lot of land work 
And then once he feels or she feels that you're ready, you get into the water and you do something called body dragging. So this is, again, you, you don't have a board, but you learn how to drag actually your body in the water with the kite. So you okay. learn how to go right, right and how to go left and how to stop. So, and- so are you are you like laying down on the water? I, I can't imagine how you're... you're- Okay, so the kite, which kind of looks like a parachute kind of a thing, yeah. our pond, is connected to you via lines, which is connected to a harness that you're wearing. And the lines attached to, you know, there's a chicken loop is what we call, but it's attached to your harness around where your belly button is. Like maybe, I don't know, two inches above your belly button. So, yeah. and because the kite's above you, when you're in the water, you're kind of above water a little bit. Like you're, you're, you're not floating, but you're kind of floating. Like you're above water. Yeah. You can never like, you can't. I don't think sink when you're attached to a kite because the kite is lifting you up. And then you have a bar and this bar is how you steer the kite. So if you pull left, you go left. And if you pull right, you go right. So you learn how to, you know, how hard do you pull? Where do you pull? Do you go to one o'clock or do you go like to six o'clock, you know, depending on where the the kite is. When you bring it up to 12 o'clock, that's neutral. How do you stop? How fast do you want to go? How much power is there? And so you start to drag yourself in the water. So your legs are behind you. Uh, and and so so your legs are behind you. Yeah, and you're dragged forwards. Wow, that's that's weird. So you're so you're, you're, is, is your belly on the water? Uh, like what part? What part kind of? of yeah, so belly down, hands up on the bar, legs behind yeah. you, and your kite's just taking you. That that uh, it looks so weird in my head right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's, imagine you're swimming. You're doing the breaststroke. But your the angle of your body is tilted upwards, and your arms your arms are on in the sky to, are aimed towards the sky because it's on the bar, mm-hmm. and the bar is what kind of steers the kite. So it's mainly like your your thighs, t- like touching the water. Let's say kind of like I would say below your belly button to the thighs, yeah, okay. and the belly button area to the thighs. And uh, the chest is above water, and the head and okay. the neck obviously in the arms, and you're just being dragged. Depending on how strong you're going, because if you go very strong, it can lift you up. So this is what you start to learn what it feels like to be in the water with this kite. Because when you're on land, you're not moving. You're just steering the kite on top of you in your neutral zones. Because if you take a power stroke, which gives you power for you to move, you don't want to be dragged on land, right? That's not what you want. So you get in the water to learn how to be dragged. You, you get in the water to learn how this kite can potentially pull you. Because eventually when you're on a board, that's what you want to learn. Mm. And then you get on the board and that's what you learn. <laughs> So there's, there are a few stages you need to go through. And like I said, like it takes some time before you get on the board. It's not like, you know, skiing or snowboarding where you get on the board from the first day and you go down. Because no. is it dangerous if you're on the board the first time? And, it's like, very just... dangerous. If, there is no way you can take a kite and get on the board the first time you've ever done this. No, there's no way. Okay. <clears throat> and then like you're navigating the kite and you're, because you're navigating the kite, it's moving you and like you're just super, are you, how fast are you when you're being pulled by the kite? It depends how fast you want to go. <laughs> oh, damn. Okay, that's, that's cool. And like, yeah. like, when, when wind, like when the wind direction changes or so, you have to like also sort of accommodate and try to steer the kite in a different way and like keep everything in check. Like it's, it's a changing landscape too is what I mean, right? Yeah, kind of. So I've never been in a situation, and I've been kiting for five years, where the wind direction changed so drastically in one session. 
you know. Mm. Um, so it, it, during the day, let's say the wind is northwest, it typically stays northwest. You can get gusts of wind where all of a sudden you get full power for like a few seconds and then it dies down and you get tugged a bit. And that can be uncomfortable and annoying if it's a very gusty day. I typically won't even go out. Um, but you're not going to all of a sudden have northwesterly wind that'll change to like southwesterly wind. Like it, that doesn't really happen. It's never, I've never experienced that in my life. So, you know, typically for the day or for the session, which lasts a few hours, you know, the wind is coming from the same direction. You might have a few gusts if you're unlucky and that's really it. Um, okay. The wind can die down. You can be out there and all of a sudden the wind, you lose wind. <laughs> then that, that sucks, you know. And yeah. I can start to feel it in my kite, like, ooh, I don't have much power. And then you start to see a lot of the kiters get out of the water. Like, okay, there must be a reason that there aren't a lot of kiters in the water. So you get out as well. Because you don't want to be in the middle of the ocean and not have any wind. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, like you imagine that just in the middle of the ocean. Just, yeah. uh, you started you started about five years ago. And, and is yeah. it like every six months or so, every summer or something, you go to this certain place where you where kite surf with like a bunch of kite surfers for for a month or two or like how do you when do you actually go kite surfing yeah so in the beginning look I actually picked up the sport when I was in Dubai and I was unemployed I didn't have a job yet and I was searching like crazy but because I was getting so frustrated with my job search and I was getting you know I was doing interviews but I wasn't always doing well in the interviews or I wasn't getting what I wanted so instead of sitting and dwelling about this all the time I picked up a new sport <laughs> you see like how I would just diversify like that. Um, so that's when I kind of started. And in the beginning, because I was a beginner or like this was such a novelty to me, um, I would literally go kiting whenever the wind was blowing. And like in those <laughs> days, we, we could fly to Qatar. And Qatar has really great wind. And one of my really good friends lives there and her and I travel for kiting. So I would just all of a sudden figure out if there was wind over the weekend and fly to Doha kite surf and then literally fly back <laughs> like, the next day i would you know just put on like yoga pants or sweatpants and then just take a plane i wouldn't even travel like that's i did that okay so i became crazy like that me and my, my friend rima we were like obsessed and then um we started to travel for it over the summers um and we would do like one or two weeks not a month we've never done a month we've done like 10 10 days to two weeks wherever mm -hmm. we are because sometimes we travel far like philippines or mauritius Zanzibar um so we would take our time with it but um and yeah it's where we go it's like a kite surfing spot and there's a kite surfing community and a lot of people there are kiters and there's a kite school and it's a lot of fun and we're kind of in the rhythm of kiting so we wake up with the wind and we have our days kind of articulated by the wind and we stop our days when the wind dies you know yeah well it's nice it's nice that you take your day outside of your like like your day depends on something that is outside of your control you know your day depends on the wind <laughs> depending yeah. on the wind I'll yeah. do this. but i mean it can be frustrating because we've traveled and spent time energy money to get somewhere and sometimes you know we'll have a lot of non-windy days and we're like okay what do we do with ourselves <laughs> you know so we've had those experiences too with like going on a hike or meet people or whatever yeah um, you're doing something else so that's that's also cool yeah, yeah so, sprinkle some randomness into your life and see what exactly. happens. Yeah. I mean, we still travel a lot for it, and I kite in Dubai whenever there's a good kite day. But I've become such a kite surfing snob now, such a wind snob. <laughs> like, so, unless the day like the wind is amazing, I don't go out because I'm over it. Like, I don't want to have a bad day, I don't want to go unless there's good wind. 
because I've gone into so many places and I've experienced really good wind that I refuse to have a bad day. Like, it's, it's like a like, mediocre it's like day. It's like, um, like I'm listening to a wind junkie, you know? I swear. I don't have enough wind, guys. <laughs> I swear. And that's the thing. That's why I was like trying to like differentiate between me now and me as a beginner. Because I would take whatever I could get, even if it was a gusty day or there wasn't a lot of wind, so I would take a bigger kite. Yeah. I don't like riding with a big kite because yeah, look, just... look at you being picky right now, you know. Yeah, now I'm picky. <laughs> I'm the total wind snow. So I don't kite, which means I don't kite as often. But when I do, it's an epic day, and yeah. this sport has taken me. I mean, to some of the most beautiful corners of the world. I've met some people that I would never have met. I mean, and it's the ultimate freedom sport. I mean, and the fact that I have a really good friend that kites as well, so we can both get in the water and our kites can take us. It's like being able to have a boat. It can take us anywhere we want. go distances with it, yeah? We go distances. We go far. Well, I would never do that alone, but since I have my girlfriend with me, you know, we go far. And I've, we've done some crazy, like, kite surfing expeditions where we're gone for two hours with a group, obviously. They're called yeah. downwinders. And I've seen things <laughs> that would just blow my mind, blow your mind. Yeah. what's so funny the downwinder <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. i thought that was a funny word like you all were downwinders it's like, a downwinder we, trip where we're gonna do a downwinder yeah get okay. it right <laughs> <laughs> oh shit i'm sorry <laughs> but i think like i think i'd love to pick up the sport at some point like is it is it a type of sports where you have to be quick as well like you have to really react quickly and, and change quickly and or is it more calm because you said it's a it's a free, it's a freeing sport. Like, yeah. explain that, please. Okay, so just like imagine you love to take road trips, or you're someone who likes cars, and you have your convertible or your motorcyclist. Eventually, you know, once you learn how to deal with this machine, you go, I don't know, to like South America or Europe, and you do a really long road trip, right? In nature, mm-hmm. and the highway's stunning, and the windows are down or on your, you're in a convertible or whatever. It's really like a pleasant experience, right? And it feels like freedom. So that's what kiting eventually feels like. But in the beginning, you need to learn how to drive this car. And it's difficult and it can be dangerous. So you have to make sure you're doing it properly and you have a good instructor. And that car has a lot of power and it can take you and you can crush and it can cause damage, right? If, mm. if you're on a motorcycle or in a car. So... You need to know what you're doing and just like... So it's like it's a proper vehicle. Like, and no, it has a lot of power. It's picking me up and it can pick up someone who's 100 kilos. It can pick up an elephant. It has a lot of power. So <laughs> if you're driving something with power, you need to know what you're doing. Um, you think you can really pick up an elephant? And if I found a kite big enough... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's make that happen. Let's, <laughs> <laughs> Let's get all those earth warriors and hook up an elephant. To, uh, I mean, it can account. pick up a grown man, an overweight grown man, for sure, right? So, <laughs> like 100 kilos, 200 kilos, like you can, for sure. There's some big people on, those, on, on the beach. And so that's the thing. And so, like, just like anything else, like when I drive now, I don't know if you're, when the last time you dri- drove was or if you drive in Germany, but it's automated. Like, I don't, I'm not constantly on edge. I'm relaxed when I'm driving. I know when to signal. I know how to enter a roundabout. Like, I'm calm. I'm chill, right? But in the beginning, you're so stressed out. You know? So that's, that's the thing. Eventually, it becomes automated. You know exactly what your kite's doing, where it is, how to power it, how to brake, all this stuff. So it's the same thing. Get into it. It's beautiful. 
Dude, yeah, definitely. And uh, I just want to know, if, is it physically exhausting? Because if you know, fat people do it and <laughs> they don't, <laughs> it's weird. Like, is it physically exhausting the activity? Look, or is it just... In the beginning, it kind of is. Because again, as a beginner, when you're nervous and stressed and scared, you're really tense, you know? In the beginning, when you're on land, I think it's only the neck that hurts because you're constantly looking up at your kite. But once you get yeah. in the water, um, I don't mean the body dragging because that's really easy. Um, but once you like start to ride and you keep crashing and you got to relaunch. And then once you're riding, you're in this like kind of squat position. But because you're a bit nervous, you're, you're like the whole body is tense and you're tensing your, your leg muscles and you're just not relaxed. You'll come out mm. of there like exhausted. But once you're comfortable and you're chilling, I don't know if you snowboard or ski or do any other like one of these sports. You're not just, yet, no. No? Okay. So eventually you just kind of relax and, you know the body just gets used to it. So some level of fitness is obviously helpful. This will definitely make you a little bit stronger, but you don't need to have a full on like gym routine to be able to kite surf. No, it's a technique thing, really. So yeah, you can do it for sure. <clears throat> Damn, man. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm glad you got to share all of that with me, or with <laughs> us. Yeah, this is with other people <laughs> listening to this, I almost forgot. The kite surfing uh, podcast. <laughs> Yeah. All right. I think I think we covered a lot. I think we covered. Uh, I don't know how long we've been talking for. We covered too much. Uh, okay, guys. So this was uh, Ali Al Hamad with us to, today. That was an awesome talk. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm uh, really excited. Like I'm, I'm really down to record another episode with you down the line. You know, like definitely as as our experiences go and we start doing different things. I wonder what type of conversation we have then. You know, considering our multifaceted sides to our personalities, I'm sure we'll have more to share. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me on your show. <laughs> yeah, that's our midnight wisdom for you guys tonight. And take care.